today's scripture come from Psalm 42, 1 to 11. <clears throat> As a deer pant for flowing streams, so pant my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have become my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the strong and lead in procession in the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. <clears throat> why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls and deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God for my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God one more time. Let's bow our heads for the Lord's blessing. God, now we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, you know where we've been. You've known what we struggled with. And now, Lord, we come to you in anticipation of you giving us the hope, the remedy, the peace that we need, that only you can provide. Oh God, now do that as you speak through your servant, and that you would please bless this message in spite of your servant who speaks it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, it's been a little bit over a month since the tragic death of both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. And even now, the recurring topic of depression is still being discussed at the national level in our culture today. And the consensus seems to be universal. We are a depressed culture. We seem to be irrefutably a very depressed culture. Recent studies have shown that the 25%, over 25% of the U.S. population at any given moment is currently suffering from depression. That means statistically, one out of four of you in this room right now is currently struggling with depression, which tells us that depression doesn't really care who you are, where you come from, what sort of educational background, what sort of status that you may have claimed for yourself or achieved for yourself. Depression is indiscriminate in terms of who it attacks, which is quite interesting because stereotypically we tend to think that depression is something that only the disenfranchised or the hormonally imbalanced teenager would struggle with. No, no. People even that we would think would never struggle with such things such as the very wealthy, the very rich, the famous, the pivotal people of history would be immunized from such a thing. But oh, that is far from the truth. Consider these words from one of the most important people in our own history today. Listen to what he said in his description of his depression where he says this, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Anybody want to take an educated guess as to who said these words? Our very own president, 
long time ago, Abraham Lincoln said those words in his description of his melancholy, his depression. Now, a lot of time has passed since President Lincoln struggled with his depression. And with all the advancements in medicine and pharmacology, you would probably assume that we would have better ways of treating depression because further, we assume that we know much more about depression since when the likes of Lincoln struggled with his depression. But oh, you would be so wrong. In another recent study that was reported by NPR, there are currently, as of now, over 20 different medications out there in the pharmacological world trying to treat depression. And if you ask these experts, whether they're clinicians or therapists or psychiatrists, psychologists, they will all tell you the same thing. We have no idea why people get depressed. And furthermore, we have no idea why some drugs work and some drugs do not. Consider these words from one practicing clinician. He says this, quote, when medication helps, we don't know why. The brain is simply too complex and our knowledge of its mechanics is too primitive. There remains many unanswered questions. We don't know why medication helps some people. We don't know why it doesn't help others. We don't know why for any individual person, some medications are more helpful than others. We don't know why medications that are chemically different have similar effects. We don't know why it can take up to a month before people notice a difference. We don't know why antidepressants often lose their effectiveness over time. Now, please don't misunderstand what I am saying here and don't misapply my words. I am not in any way saying that if you are a person or if you know someone who struggles with depression, that medication should never, ever be a consideration. I am not one of those fundy pastors who says, no, no, no to medicine. No, no, no to those things as if it's in mark of unfaithfulness to God. No, far from it. If you know someone or if you personally are someone who personally benefits from medication and if it helps you, you must and you should take advantage of it. Oh, yes, because if it is a helpful thing, I do believe it's something that God has called us to take advantage of so that we could be at a much better place. But with that said, I have two caveats to this idea of finding our hope in simply a pill. Caveat number one, in a recent study done by the Journal of the American Medical Association, they've come to find that mildly to moderately depressed people do just as well, if not better, than simply exercising rather than taking antidepressants. In a recent advertisement that I saw on television that was promoting an antidepressant, it has this disclaimer. Listen to what it says. Talk to your doctor if you have unusual changes in mood, behavior, or thoughts of suicide. Antidepressants can increase these in children, teens, and young adults. Elderly parents who use this product can suffer a stroke and death. So basically, anyone, if you're a child, a teen, a young adult, or an elderly person, could have very bad effects when it comes to physical, medical treatments of depression. The point is simply this. We must not fall into the trap of thinking that medicine is simply the magic bullet in treating depression because if you talk to anyone who's in the field, they'll tell you there's no such thing as a magic bullet when it comes to treating depression. Furthermore, we need to remember as Christians, we know what the Bible says about human beings. We are more than just physical beings. We are also what? We are spiritual beings, which means the depression that we struggle with has a profound spiritual component. In fact, I'm about to argue it probably has more of a spiritual component than it does physical. Okay, And that is what we're going to address in today's message as we're continuing our series through the Shoebox series. Surprisingly, someone asked me to address this very issue 
of depression. Maybe it was stimulated by what recently happened tragically to these celebrities, or maybe it's because of something that they've gone through or a loved one has gone through. But no doubt, this is something that we all need to understand. And to do so, we're going to take a look at a very famous passage in the Bible, Psalm 42, written by the great King David in the days of the Old Testament. And as we take a look at this psalm and as we kind of parse it out, here we're going to see David kind of portraying himself as a great warrior, kind of like a classic golden gloves boxer or maybe an expert MMA fighter showing us how we are to contend, how we are to do battle with depression when it attacks us. And so I thought kind of a creative way to kind of get this point across, three things that I'd like to share with you that I'm going to term as rounds, like in a boxing match or in an MMA fight. Various rounds that we need to get ready for, where each round tells us a different tactic of defending ourselves against depression. And so here we go. Round one, remember the love of God through community. When you're struggling with depression, you need to first remember the love of God through community. Number two, you need to recognize, you need to be aware of the combo attack of depression. And number three, you need to defend yourself with the gospel. Round one, remember the love of God through community. Round two, recognize the combo attack of depression. And finally, round three, defend yourself with the gospel. Okay, let's jump right in. First, round one, remember the love of God through community. Take a look at the first two verses again, where David says the following, as dear pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here, David starts off his psalm, describing how much he is yearning for God. And interestingly, the way he decides to describe it is by paralleling that with the way a thirsty deer is panting for water in a desert, basically, in a parched land. Now, when you read these verses in isolation, you may be tempted to misinterpret to thinking that what David is describing is a spiritual condition that he's in where he is just so spiritually on fire for God, as if he's experiencing a personal revival. You know, this uh, passage in scripture has been used to create a very well-known praise song. It's called As the Deer. You guys know that song, right? As the deer pants for the water, right? It's a very popular song. And, and just by the way that the writers have written that song, it seems to convey like you have this close, intimate relationship with God that you and Jesus are like this. Nothing can separate you. You're having kind of like this personal revival moment. And because that's the flavor that that song creates in your soul, it's easy for us to read in to that, this passage, and think that's what David must be feeling. Oh, he must be singing this in a moment of spiritual high euphoric moment where he's having this personal revival. But let me tell you now, that is not what's going on. These words are not in any indication as if David is having a personal revival. How do I know? Because of what he says in the very next verse. What does it say? My tears have been my food day and night. You know, one of the first tell signs that you are depressed is that you don't want to eat. Am I right? Now, I know many of you guys in here personally. In fact, I think I know all of you guys in here personally. And one of the things that I know about most of you is that you guys love to eat. There is nothing that can bring a huge smile across your face than having a nice, steamy plate of colorful, aromatic deliciousness right in front of you. And I know there was a birthday celebration last night, and I'm sure that was there as well. And there were smiles accompanying with it, right? There's just something about food that just brings such delight, especially here in New York with some of the great foods that are out there today. And yet, when you are depressed, when you are downcast, when you are sullen, 
It doesn't matter if you have the most delicious, the most expensive, the most exquisite succulent meal in front of you. It cannot do a thing. It cannot cause a crack to come across your face. It cannot lift up your spirit in any way. That is what's happening to David. Something has gotten this man so sullen, so broken, so depressed that the only things making it into his mouth are the salty tears that are streaming down from his eyes. David is what's going through what theologians refer to as the dark night of the soul, okay? And when you realize that, you come to realize that when he says things like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, this is not in any way, as I said before, an indication that he feels this personal revival with God. No, he is trying to describe what his depression feels like. And interestingly, the way he describes his depression is what? He calls it a thirst for God. His depression feels like a thirst, not for water, not for food, but a thirst for God. Now, for most of us, especially if you're here investigating Christianity, you hear that and you're like, that just sounds really odd. So weird, something unexpected, because when most of us are depressed, hardly ever would we ever make any sort of connection whatsoever with this idea that our depression has anything to do with God, as if these are two mutually exclusive things. Most of us, when we are down, don't try to think that it has anything to do with anything spiritual, let alone anything to do with God. But consider these very interesting words from a French psychiatrist by the name of Julia Kristeva. After many years of treating depressed people, and she's not a believer, by the way, this is what she came to realize when it came to the consistent behavior of the patients that she treated. She writes this, all depressed people are sullen, radical atheists. Huh. She doesn't say all depressed people are people who have a pessimistic view of life. She doesn't say all depressed people have low serotonin levels. No, she says all depressed people are sullen, radical atheists. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world would this woman portray depression on such spiritual terms? Why would she refer to God indirectly in this case as having some connection to depression in general for all people everywhere? It's because she has come to discover what David knew already and knew all too well. Depression whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, has always something to do with God. Again, depression always has something to do with God. Just take a listen at some of these sample uh, quotes that I picked up from non-Christians as they're describing their own depression. They say this, quote, hell came to pay me a visit. If there is a hell upon earth, it is to be found in a melancholy heart. Depression involves a complete absence, absence of effect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. For all intents and purpose, the deeply depressed are just the walking dead. Now, if you compared how these people are describing their depression to the way David is, they're virtually identical, except for one key difference. You see, David, he's like a seasoned fighter. Literally, he was. Even psychologically, he's a seasoned fighter because he's able to recognize what his opponent, depression, is trying to do to him. And what is it trying to do? He knows depression is trying to attack his confidence that God, the God he loves, truly loves him. One of the things that he's come to realize in terms of how depression attacks people 
is that it tries to erode the confidence that they may have that God truly cares, that God is truly there, and that God truly loves. I mean, after all, isn't that the classic definition of hell, being separated from God's love? Which explains, does it not, the way uh, he ends verse 3 with that very haunting, dark question, where is your God? But here's what's so amazing. David, because he's a fighter by nature, doesn't just take this attack of depression lying down. He doesn't just say, oh, well, I guess I just have to just take it. I just have to put up with it and just deal with it. No, David is unwilling just to sit there and let depression keep pummeling and robbing him of the most important thing in his life, namely his confidence in God's love. And so what does he do? He fights back. He fights back with all of his might with a counterattack. And it begins to be spoken of in verse four, where he says this, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. You see what he's doing? The first attack that depression gives to him, he begins the counterattack by doing one simple act, remembering, bringing back to the memory, bringing back to your recollecting mind. The question, what exactly is he remembering? Again, Verse four, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. David is describing a situation, a moment where he was filled with such joy, such euphoria, such a sense of transcendence, the complete opposite of what he was feeling now. And it was what? When he was leading God's people to corporate worship. You know, there's a reason why corporate worship is one of our core values as a church. The Bible says, and life confirms, does it not, Christian, that God created you to worship. But hear me, he didn't just create you to worship in the private isolation of your own life, somewhere in some prayer closet somewhere, and that's it. That's the extent of your worship. No, God created you, more importantly, to not only worship God that way, but also to come together in a setting like this to worship God's people with brothers and sisters in Christ so that through that worship, it can enhance your personal worship to God. Do you hear what I just said? One of the ways that you draw close to God, in fact, the primary way you draw close to God is not just having your own personal quiet time every single day where you pray first thing in the morning and last at night and that's it. No, even better than that is when you gather together in the community setting so that it can foster genuine corporate Worship. Listen, you cannot draw close to God completely by yourself with your leather-bound Bible and your prayer journal and your podcast. No. If you really want to draw close to God, you need to make it into the habit of gathering with God's people. You know why? Because when you're in community with God's people, you have people who can encourage you with words saturated with scripture. They can pray for you as well as pray without you being aware of it. So the Holy Spirit does its ministry. They can rebuke you to your face, confronting you with scripture that you need to listen. They can hold you accountable with recurring habitual sins that you struggle with. They can speak truth to you as you go through a Bible study or as you reflect on a sermon and you get insights that you didn't think of when you heard me speak it or Pastor James speak it or when you read Tim Keller talking about it in the Bible study. There is something about coming together that enables you to draw close to God in such a way that you could not do 
on your own. Consider how one theologian by the name of Donald Whitney puts it. He writes this, quote, God will manifest his presence in congregational worship in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you are not only a temple of God as an individual, but the Bible also says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. God manifests his presence in different ways to the living stones of his temple when they are gathered than he does to them when they are apart. Now, what does all this mean for us practically? It means this, Christian. When you are struggling with depression, when you're overwhelmed with sorrow, the thing you must never, ever do is tragically what we tend to do first of all, which is what? We isolate ourselves. We go into quarantine. You go MIA. You're never coming to service. You're not joining Oikos group. You're not hanging out with your brothers and sisters. You're not praying or sharing your prayer needs. Right? You're just completely on your own. And by doing that, you give depression even more arsenal to do its damage against you because it's robbing you of the very thing that you need the most at that moment. You need to be assured. You need to be reminded. You need to be encouraged right? through the words and actions of other saints that God does love you. And if you deprive yourself of the very environment that enables you to realize that the most corporate worship and the underlying community that promotes that corporate worship, you are setting yourself up for further depression, prolonging it unnecessarily, going deeper into it than you have to. The one thing you must not forget when you first get struck by depression and its first punch against you is do not isolate yourself. Do not go MIA. Do not go quarantine. Do not wait until you get multiple texts, multiple emails, multiple phone calls, multiple knocks on the door and say, where are you? Come out. Because by doing so, you end up putting yourself in a prison of isolation that further spirals you deeper and deeper into darkness that might be harder and harder for you to come out of. So that's the first thing that we need to recognize when we battle depression. Number one, remember the love of God that you can encounter in community, never in isolation. But here's the thing. That's round one. That's just the beginning. Turns out depression is like an expert MMA fighter. It has multiple ways of attacking us, and we need to be aware of these things. If you ever watch MMA, and by the way, I'm not an MMA fan, okay? Uh, but I know some of you guys are, so I'm just contextualizing ways that you can understand, right? If you have an MMA fighter who is a skilled master at multiple disciplines, and you go up against a guy who's only skilled in one of these disciplines, this guy is going to be unprepared, right? So in order for this person to adequately go toe-to-toe, they need to be aware of the possible multiple attacks. And so let's do that now as we go on to my second point, round two, recognize the combo attack of depression. Take a look again, verse 11, where David says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall say again, praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, you may not realize this, but these are fighting words. David is speaking words of violence. He is speaking words of content, contentment, right? He's trying to contend. He is being, he is being hostile, but here's the thing. He is actually talking to himself. And we're going to 
go into that a little bit more in my third point. But for now, just know he is talking to himself, almost as if he's kind of psyching himself out. He's yelling at himself as if to avoid the tendency that most people fall into when they get depressed, which is, woe is me, and starts cataloging all the reasons to why they should be depressed. And he's basically talking to himself with these fighting words, don't do that. Now, here's what's so interesting. If you know the story of David, you'll come to realize that he has actually many reasons to be depressed. Right? If you ever read his story right, in 2 Samuel right, and a little bit in Chronicles, you come to notice, man, this guy has a lot of reasons to be depressed, which also means there are many different ways that depression hit him and attacked him. And so let's take a look at the various ways that depression attacked him one by one so that we can have a better understanding of how depression can attack us in this combo attack. The first combo attack that depression does that David was suffering in our passage was guilt and shame due to some sort of failure that is now causing other people to suffer, right? Just a little background behind Psalm 42. Bible commentators tell us that when David wrote these words, right, he wasn't in the rooftop of his palace with a sunny day and a nice cold drink in his hand meditating. No, he was hiding in a cave with his men. Why? Because his own son by the name of Absalom was trying to kill him so that he could take over the throne from his father forcibly, violently. And here's the thing. This caused civil war, which means a lot of people were dying. A lot of innocent people were suffering, including his men who were devoted to him. They were overwhelmed with suffering as well and their families that they had to leave behind. But here's the thing. David was not suffering anger because his own son was trying to kill him. You know what he was struggling with? Guilt and shame. You know why? David may have been a man after his own heart, but he was also a man who neglected the heart of his own kids. Absalom was the way that he was primarily because David was a terrible father. He was a terrible dad, okay? Terrible father. And one of the fruits that came out of him failing in a major area of life that God calls us to succeed in, parenting, he was now suffering the bitterness of because his own son, wounded and broken by the years of neglect and abuse by his own dad, resulted in him wanting to kill his father. Can you imagine the guilt, the shame that David was feeling because knowing that the reason why the nation was suffering, the reason why his men were suffering, the reason why his other children were suffering, why he was suffering is because he was responsible for it, right? He is the one that was responsible for all this grievances and all this heartache, all this bloodshed. And as a result of that guilt and shame, it was spiraling him down into a deep abyss of depression. And friends, that's a reason, is it not? That's why sometimes you get depressed, right? You've all at one moment in your life have failed, right? And that failure has been costly. It has jeopardized people in your life who was depending on you to succeed in the very area that you failed. And now as you see your loved ones that you yourself are suffering the consequences of it, what is going to happen? Guilt and shame, which is going to perpetrate this sense of depression. Am I right? And all of a sudden, you feel the accusatory fingers of guilt and shame coming upon you, whether they be the fingers of a pink slip, the fingers of an eviction notice, or maybe the literal fingers of a person like a spouse pointing out all the flaws that you have. And of course, you multiply that with the fingers of your own pointing back at you, multiplying the pain and guilt and suffering and shame. You are going to fall into depression as a result of the failure that resulted in other people's suffering, and it will create 
a deep abyss. That's the first reason why so many and why David in this instance was depressed. And furthermore, by the way, just to go on a brief aside, this is why so many Christians today will never admit that they're depressed when they clearly are. Have you ever been around somebody where you know they're just down? You're like, hey, what's wrong? They're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know why they do that? Because for them to admit that they're depressed is also to admit failure, which would further multiply the accusatory fingers of guilt and shame, which would make them feel worse than they are. And so what do they do? I'm doing fine. Everything is okay. Nothing new to report. Some would even have the audacity to say, God is good, right? Just in a pathetic attempt to deflect when you know they're not doing well. Why? Guilt and shame has led them to a downcast depression that is overwhelming. That's what David was going through. That was the first attack of this multiple attack of depression. With that said, let's move on to the second attack that depression does, which we read about in verse 10. At the beginning, it says, as with a deadly wound in my bones. Now, I don't think David is trying to be poetic. He's not trying to be metaphorical. I think he is being literal. When someone is chasing after you, trying to kill you, where you have to forcibly hide and run, you're going to end up with what? You're going to end up with aching muscles, torn ligaments, broken bones, hunger, thirst, sleepless nights. And as a result, you are going to suffer tremendous physical distress, physical distress that if it's not alleviated within a certain critical time will morph into psychological depression, right? When your body is physically distressed for a prolonged period of time to where it doesn't have an ability to recover, it will cause you to be depressed. It will put you wallowing down to the depths of your soul, right? You have to remember that even though what I said at the beginning of my message that we're spiritual beings, we're also physical beings, right? And if your body is not doing right, if your body is not functioning right, if your body is being attacked by some sort of internal disease or sickness, it will take you to the depths. It will take you down to the gallows of your soul, which also means that sometimes the remedy to depression, some kinds of depression, can be an easy physical fix, whether it's going on a diet, getting more sleep, and yes, indeed, maybe even popping a pill. But I go back again to what I said at the beginning. Don't put all your hopes into just physical relief, whether it be in a pill or a salad bowl or a gym, because as much as you can alleviate the physical foundations that lead to depression, the physical ailments that are foundation to some of the depression that we go through, it really is only a temporary fix. You know why? Because the Bible says that when sin came into the world, one of the unavoidable consequences is what? Physical decay, physical deterioration. I'm sorry to say, no matter how healthy you are, right? No matter how strong, how great your diet is, you will slow down. You will get old. You will get weak. Case in point, I'm losing my hair, right? It's so depressing. I literally get the, stop laughing, okay, please. I am literally getting depressed because every time you guys take pictures of me, post it on Facebook, all I see, eye of the storm that's just getting bigger and bigger with each new post that goes up, right? Now, what this tells us is that as much as we can delay the onset of this particular kind of depression, we can't delay it indefinitely. Sooner or later, we will have a lingering depression that will just stay on us simply because of the condition that's precipitating it, physical ailments due to growing decay and deterioration. It's going to stay there. Now, you're like, wow, that is depressing. I need to just stay there for just a moment. I need to stay here and let it sink in so I can just really kind of 
get over this. I'm sorry, we can't. We have to move on. Let's go on to the third attack of this combo attack, which we read again also in verse 10. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You know, when David's son, Absalom, tried to overthrow the throne and take it over from his dad forcibly, he needed to first get the political support of David's worst enemies as well as David's closest allies. And to David's shock, he was able to pull it off, right? Can you imagine if the people who hated you the most and the people who loved you the most came together so that they could get rid of you, right? Can you imagine if that happened to you? Now, hopefully, none of this will happen to you because you're not a, you know, ancient potentate trying to be a great king for God, right? But nevertheless, all of us in here can and probably have experienced something of a similar vein, have we not? Have we not had people who personally express not only how much they hate us, but they somehow were able to convince everyone else that they were right to hate on you and maybe even get them to agree with them to hate on you? Whether it's, you know, a friend of a friend, you guys all hang out together and you just don't like this dude because they don't like you for no apparent reason. And every time you go to your friends to talk about it, they act like, I don't see what's the problem here. And you're like, what's going on? How can you side with him or at worst, not side with anyone Right when you should be siding with me, or maybe it's a coworker who's being passive aggressive, getting in the way of your work, and just when you muster the courage to talk to your manager about it, he comes back at you and like, why can't you be more of a team player? Why do you need to bring drama into the workplace? Can't you just figure it out on your own and not bring the whole team into? Why do you have to cause such tension? Or maybe it's a family member who knows how to push those buttons, right? to where it's beyond the awareness of everyone else in the family. And every time you complain, they look at you as the one who's causing the problem. You as the one who's becoming the black sheep of the family, right? Whoever these people may be in your life, the point is clear. There is a sense when there are people in your life who are wronging you and somehow they pull off and making you look like the bad guy, you with the issues, you with the, the, the problems, that can spiral you down into a form of depression like no other. And it can make you feel like nobody cares about you, even the ones that you thought would be by your side. Now, at this point, you would think, surely, Pastor John, there's no more, right? Well, there is. One final thing. It's a four-combo attack of depression, kind of like the, the four-finger punch of death that you see in those kung fu movies, right? So let's move on to the last one. The fourth reason and the fourth attack is to why David was depressed and why many of you are depressed. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This is a very weird statement in and of itself, but especially for someone like David to make. You know why? The first half of this statement, I say to God, my rock, that's a statement a person who's very mature in their faith would say, right? Someone who is really spiritually mature, someone who is very godly, someone who is a spiritual giant, that, that's the confession of faith of someone who is truly, truly someone who is close to God. But then the question that comes after it, why have you forgotten me? That's a question that only an immature person would say. Someone who has forgotten and has no faith. The first statement is a person filled with faith. The second question is a question that has no faith at all. How can you make sense of such an oxymoronic combination of words? It makes no sense, and that's the point. Sometimes depression makes 
no sense. You are living the life that God has called you to live. You're living a godly life, a moral life. You're relationally competent. You're outwardly compassionate. You're wise. You're committed to the universal church. You're prayerful. You're serving sacrificially. You're on top of your game. You're doing well financially. Your family is healthy. Your career is booming. And yet, for some reason, for no apparent reason, you are downcast. How do you make sense of that? How can you comprehend and you see, this is perhaps the deadliest attack of depression of all. Depression has a way of getting at you when normally, if you look at your life, it shouldn't be happening at you at all. Sometimes depression attacks for reasons that you cannot fathom. Because as you do an assessment and diagnostic of yourself, like, here are the reasons why I should be depressed. There's none of it. And yet, here I am still feeling depressed. That happens sometimes. Depression can sometimes be way above our conscious radar to where we cannot figure out the underpinnings of what's causing it to happen in our life. And this has happened to even some of the most greatest saints that church history has shown. For example, Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon excuse me, arguably one of the greatest saints that the church has ever produced. And yet listen to what he says as he describes his own struggles with depression. He writes, quote, I could weep for an hour like a child, and yet I not know what I wept for. Sometimes depression just comes upon you and you have no idea, right? And you're just left with this mystery. That, I would argue, is probably what makes depression the most scariest of all when you suffer this method of attack. So there you have it. The four ways, the multifaceted ways that depression attacks. Now, we ask David, David, are you hopeless? Are you in despair? Do you feel like you're ready to throw in the towel? You're ready to give up? Surprisingly, and to our encouragement, he says no. Because as overwhelming as the foe of depression seems to be, he says there is hope. There is one way that can overcome all of this resistance. And to explain, I go to my next point. Defend yourself with the gospel. Going back to what David says in verse 11, I said earlier that David is actually talking to himself when he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Now, in New York City, tragically, we sometimes see people talking to themselves a lot. I was in the city this past Friday, and literally there was a man next to me talking to himself. He didn't have a cell, you know, Bluetooth uh, speaker. He was just yelling at himself. And I was like, oh, dear, let me just go across the street here, right? And usually whenever we read or see or, or envision someone talking to themselves, we don't think of that person as a very sane or stable person, right? And yet, as I'm about to show you, David talking to himself actually indicates that he's the most stable and sanest person on earth. Why? Let me explain. If you are into boxing or if you are into like MMA and all that stuff, one of the things that always happens weeks before the main event is that they always do these press conferences, right? And they always have the two fighters like at a press conference. And one of the things that they do is that they let them talk to each other. And you ever hear the kinds of exchange that they have? They're not exchanging recipes of how to make the best chocolate cake, right? What are they doing? Like, man, I'm going to destroy you, right? They're just like, it's like yelling at each other, spits coming out of their mouth, and they're just talking trash, right? And that's part of the entertaining part. That's what gets people excited, like, oh, you hear what he says? So he immediately busts out credit card pay-per-view, right? Because it, it sells the fight, right? If you saw one of them just cowering away, like, yes, you're right, you're right. You're like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to pay money on this. There's something exciting about fighting back, 
right? In fact, coaches will tell these fighters, look, when you are talking to this opponent, you got to already believe you defeated this guy. Don't even listen to what he's saying. Speak over him and only hear what you're saying to him, right? Speak words of conquering and victory over this person, over their words of them conquering you. Why? Because studies have shown that when athletes do that, they actually increase their chances of winning the fight because they're psychologically ready to be physically prepared for the battle. And David is doing the exact same thing. He's basically saying, look, when depression comes and gives you this attack, the primary way that depression is going to attack you with these four ways of attacking is through what it's saying, right? Depression is going to say, oh, you're filled with guilt and shame. You're hopeless, right? You are a filthy sinner. Or when your hair is bald and like, oh, Sarah's not going to love you anymore. She's going to leave you for another pastor or something like that, right? Depression talks, right? And the thing that you need to do is talk back to where you're hearing what you're saying to depression, not what depression is saying to you. Consider these words from theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones when he says this, quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42, David, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. What is he saying? When depression starts talking to you, to where it's getting you down, you talk right back. You got to be like Conor McGregor. You ever see Conor at a press conference? It's hilarious. And he makes people, his opponents, get even more angrier to the point where they're going to get defeated, most likely. That's how you have to see yourself. You need to see yourself as a spiritual Conor McGregor talking back down to the depression that is your foe. Talk back to it, right? The question is, what exactly are you supposed to say? You're thinking, okay, what am I going to say tonight? Depression? You have a fat mom. Like, what are you going to say? David says exactly what we're to say to our depression. He says this, put your hope in God, your Savior and your God. What is that? That's the gospel. What is David doing? He's preaching the gospel to himself, Right? He's reminding him of who his God is, who his Savior is, who his Redeemer is, right? That is what you must do every time you fall into a season of depression. When you come under attack from one of the various ways that in which depression will attack you, every time you talk back with the gospel, what does that mean? Well, let me give you a practical example. When you're depressed because you're messed up, and you failed and you feel guilt and shame, what do you need to remember? The gospel. Specifically, you need to remember that God became a man, Jesus Christ, that he paid the full cost of your sins by being your substitute savior. So that he says, you are not guilty. I know you feel guilty right now, but you are not guilty because I am your God and my words and my verdict weighs more than what your verdict says of yourself. This is why the apostle John says in 1 John three twenty, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You realize what he's saying? He's saying it doesn't matter what your depressed self is saying to you. Someone of greater authority who not only has the power to forgive you, but the power to change you to where you no longer fail the way you have been failing. You're growing out of that. He says you're not guilty and shameful anymore. 
right? That's what you need to do when you're suffering from that kind of depression. Or what about the depression, you know, that comes from like hair loss or losing a limb, right? Again, you preach the gospel to yourself, specifically the promise that says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to give us a new body, right? That is free from decay, that is free from brokenness, right? One day this is going to grow back, praise Jesus, Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. Okay? What about when you're depressed, when people are, you know, defaming your good name, your coalition to convince them to be a part of to where it's against you, even though you don't deserve it? Again, remember the gospel, the promise of the gospel, where God says that at the end, on judgment day, when his Christ comes to judge the world, he will vindicate his people. He will reestablish their good name, and he will judge and take vengeance against those who are against you in an unjust manner. That's why he, uh, Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. But what about the last one, when you're depressed and you have no idea why? Again, the gospel, specifically the one who brings the gospel, Jesus. Do you know how the Bible describes Jesus sometimes? He's sometimes referred to as the wisdom of God. Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians as the wisdom and righteousness of God, chapter 1. Do you know what that means? It means he knows more about your depression than you could ever know for yourself. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because he's the one in charge. He's the one who reigns because by virtue of his resurrection, he has all authority on heaven and earth as he told his disciples before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28. Which means even if you don't know why you're depressed, the one who can alleviate and has the power to help you with your depression does know why. Which is why at the end of the world, Revelation 21, it says this, he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Do you know why Jesus is able to wipe away every tear? Right? It's because there's no fresh new ones coming. Because he has figured out the thing that you cannot on your own. He knows that unnameable reason. He knows it all and he's making all new to where there will not be any more recurring depression that is ominous and nebulous and therefore a mysterious thing to you. He figured it out. This is what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. It's taking all the multifaceted offensive power of the gospel to counteract all the multiple offenses of depression that it can attack you with. The gospel is much more multifaceted than sin. It has, and then some, various ways of defending you. All it takes, however, is you remembering it over and over every single day. Here's my question. Do you even remember the gospel? When was the last time you arguably preached the gospel to yourself? I hope to God that the preached gospel doesn't just come to you on Sunday morning when I'm doing this to you right now. I hope it comes to you every single day, morning, noon, and night, because depression will come at you. The question is, are you going to be prepared for it? If you are, 
then you will be a source of tremendous blessing because you will be equipped not only of helping yourself, but of helping those around you who are depressed. Chances are you know somebody or multiple somebodies who are depressed right now. The question is, are you even a source of blessing to yourself to where you can do that by actively preaching the gospel to yourself? That is my charge to you this morning. Get into that habit of talking to yourself, okay? People won't think you're crazy. Just don't say it out loud. Do it in your head. Do it in your prayer journal. Do it with each other so that you get into the habit of doing that daily. At this time, I want to end my message with a couple practical next steps. First, if you're here today and you're not a believer and someone especially struggling with depression and this word really helped you in such a way that it brought credibility of Jesus to your eyes to where you're ready to accept him as Lord and Savior, take this time to pray and acknowledge Jesus for who he is, your creator God, who you're destined to be with and make him the Lord of your life and confess your sins and receive his forgiveness on the cross that he did for you. Number two, take some time and consider the four reasons David gives to his depression and ask which of these four or which multiple ones affect me now, right? Then take this time and really meditate on the aspect of the gospel that treats that very thing and get into the habit of writing it out on a card, read it over and over every morning. Share it with your Oikos group members so that they can pray for you throughout the week so that when you meet with them, they can say, have you been preaching to yourself? I have. Have you been preaching to yourself? I have. Hey, we're happy now. No, I'm joking. But we're getting better, right? Finally, come talk to me. Come talk to P. James, right? Come talk to us. We are here for you. If you're really struggling with depression, don't use this excuse. Oh, PJ, I know you're so busy. You're about to have a fifth kid. And it's like, yeah, I'm about to have a fifth kid. So, you know, if I'm not depressed because I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, if I can get over my depression right now, I, I can't help you out, right? Come talk to us. We pray for you guys every day. We do. And one of the things that we're praying for is that this city will not do its overcast that it has done to so many other New Yorkers of making them so sullen and down. So take advantage of us. You have two pastors, theologically trained, and furthermore, you have a couple of well-trained counselors in our congregation. I'm in the process of trying to do something right now to help you guys with that too. So please come talk to us. We're your shepherds. We're here to be there for you as we do in our prayer life for you. Speaking of prayer life, let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us as we seek to live out this calling of being a people who have joy in you, the joy of salvation. Father, I know many of my brothers and sisters in here are going through seasons, if not currently, of depression. Help us to really be there for one another so that we can be the kind of community that you've called us to be. Furthermore, Lord, help us to get into the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Father, no more will we just rely on the ordained pastors of preaching the gospel, but we need to do this every single day so that we can be a loving presence, so that we can be a source of encouragement to the people around us. Would you enable to do that so that we can fulfill our commission of being a blessing to this world? Oh God, help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.